Welcome to podcast number 15 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is September 3rd, 2018, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Today's guest is Fred Mamoon. Fred is currently a communications officer at Yale University. Prior to joining Yale in 2017, Fred worked for 20 years as an investigative journalist and as a television news executive producer and producer. Fred spent his news career breaking original stories, managing TV news teams, and developing exclusive video and digital content for NBC News and Fox News. Fred's work routinely generated national and international attention, won dozens of journalism awards, including eight Emmy Awards, and changed multiple local, state, and federal laws. Fred spent three years on the board of directors for the Los Angeles Press Club and four years teaching television news and investigative journalism at UCLA. It is my pleasure to introduce Fred Mamoon. My Favorite Detective Stories podcast features past or present detectives and investigative journalists. As a working investigator of over 42 years, I hope to inform, inspire, and entertain you with great stories. We want to learn from our guests how they got started in the field and why they decided to become investigators in the first place. Listen as they tell us about the early years and who were their mentors and why those mentors had such a huge impact on their careers. We'll explore what makes for a good investigator and what makes for good investigators investigation. But most importantly, after you get to know our guests, we will ask them for their favorite detective story, or maybe two. Stay tuned. The interview is about to begin. Hi, Fred. Welcome to the show. Hi, John. How are you today? Thanks for having me. Uh, You're welcome. Thank you. And for a change, I'm actually interviewing someone in or near my zip code. Uh, Fred, you're up in the greater New Haven area. And how is the weather for us today? You know what? I think it is a uh, lovely summer day. Um, Not too hot, not too humid, but um, it's beautiful outside with the sun coming down. Very enjoyable, I'd say. And I'll get you out there again real quick, I promise. Uh, Today is uh, June 22nd, a Friday, as we record this, and I'm just happy to have you on the uh, show. I've been wanting to have you on the show for, what, about six months now? I've been chasing you, right? Uh, I don't know about chasing, but no, I appreciate the offer, and um, you know, what you do is interesting to me, um, so I was excited to be on your show, too. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So now, uh, back in the day, when uh, people asked you what you did, what did you tell them? Well, you know, that depends if I was on a story or not. If I was, you know, you know, one thing about being a journalist and working for, you know, um, big news organizations, like I worked for NBC News and I worked for Fox News for years um, in Chicago and Los Angeles and New York primarily. And, um, you know, when you work for a big news organization, they have a, you know, set of standards and uh, guidelines in terms of behavior and we can you know we would have to be very careful to never misrepresent ourselves so um, if somebody asked me what I did if I was on a story or an undercover story you know frankly I could try to get out of answering them and a lot of times I would turn the question on them or I would tell them that was something that was true but maybe not all the information they were looking for mm-hmm. and usually uh, you didn't have a camera over your shoulder and a boom mic above your head well when you do when you have the camera out 
you know who you are at that point. <laughs> and, you know, you got the mic stick with the normally. Um, but I'll be honest, even when we did confrontation interviews, um, some people call them or when we did, you know, when we when we caught up to people to do on camera interviews with them, people that were sort of subjects of our investigation. Um, I was I'm not a really huge fan of um, chasing people down the street. It's you know, it's sensational kind of TV, um, and it looks good sometimes, but editorially, you don't really get much out of it. No, I understand. So, um, so in conversation, say at a at a party uh, where somebody would ask you, "What are you doing?" What would you say? There you go. So, um, yeah, for years I was um, working as an investigative news um, journalist, a television news journalist, and um, what that essentially means is, you know, or news, you know. Investigative news producer would be um, the term in television, but essentially what it means is you're a journalist who you know um, develops and um, finds, develops, writes, produces, maybe video records, maybe edits um, investigative news stories. That's fantastic. And how did you get started at that? You know, I started um, in television in Chicago, and, um, you know, I was always interested in TV, in TV news to some extent. And um, I was, I, you know, I consider myself an inquisitive kind of person growing up. And um, I, you know, I got into news pretty early on um, in my, you know, in my career. I started as an intern, which a lot of people do. And I started actually doing entertainment news um, as, you know, and when I, when I got in the business, um, I was an on-air entertainment reporter for several years, and it was enjoyable, and I went to a lot of great concerts and interviewed celebrities, but I found that I gravitated to more heavy, investigative, um, you know, deep-dive kind of journalism, stories that you have to dig up, stories that you have to find, um, you know, do heavy research on, um, oftentimes undercover reporting on, and um, try to expose wrongdoing and fraud and corruption. That mm-hmm. kind of thing I gravitated to. So you gravitated to it, but how did you decide or why did you decide to, to go in that direction with your news career? You know, I um, a lot of times um, when you get to a specialized kind of reporting, like investigative reporting, you've done quite a bit of daily reporting. And I did do a lot of daily reporting where I would go out and kind of do the story of the day, um, which is really exciting and interesting. You know, one day you'd be interviewing Bill Clinton, um, and the next day you could be covering a hurricane. Um, And there's a skill to that. And there's a, you know, and, you know, it's important stuff and it's very topical. But on the flip side, you don't get a, you know, sometimes you could show or you see what's something's going on there, but you don't have time to really dig in and expose wrongdoings and corruption. And one of the things I noticed that really meant a lot to me um, early on was the victims. You know, you would have people that you would come in contact with that were greatly victimized and they didn't have a voice. And it sounds cheesy, but, you know, that's one of the great things about investigative journalism. You could give a voice at the very least. You could give a voice 
to, to people that otherwise don't necessarily have one. They don't have a platform like TV news or a big digital news kind of thing. Um, and one day I was working on, um, while I was doing entertainment reporting and other stuff, again, I was starting to do more daily news at that point and harder news. And I was working what they call kind of the news desk at Fox in Chicago. And this is years and years ago. And, um, you know, you're essentially on that desk. It's a, it's a, it's a big long desk and it's kind of the nerve center. You're, you're dispatching news crews to go cover stories. You're listening to scanners for stories coming in and. And it's a very kind of real-time operational center of a, a vibrant newsroom, particularly TV. Anyways, um, you know, you would do beat checks. One of your the lowly when you're you know beginning in that business, you know, at least back in the day, it still is. You do beat checks, meaning you would when you're working on that news desk, you call all the cop shops, all the precincts, you know, you call the district attorney's office, just kind of shaking them down for stories. And um, and by and large, it was tedious work, and you know, you wouldn't get far with it because you know you wouldn't get past the front door too often on those calls. But sometimes you did. And I um, I started noticing a pattern of crimes that were happening in um, Chicago's West Side community. And it was a string of assaults and some sexual assaults. And um, nobody had really connected them. And I kind of noticed that there were a pattern um, occurring. And I, you know, we ended up breaking a story on it. And it turned out it was indeed one guy who was um, who victimized a lot of women. And he was kind of, um, you know, a predator. And he hadn't been to so my stories. We did some stories. It raised, um, you know, attention to the matter in Chicago. And the guy ended up getting arrested. You know, some guy got arrested over it, and um, and it really gave me the bug. So when I did that, I'm like, wow, you know, we kind of brought this guy to justice, and um, and it kind of opened my door to the investigative reporting and how you could, you know, help people sometimes, and how you could actually hold people accountable. Yes, and when you said earlier about having a voice for the victims, I know a lot of homicide de- detectives talk about having a, a voice for the dead victim, uh, because the dead victim doesn't have a voice anymore, and it's up to the them to speak for the dead and it's uh and they have to carry on to try to find whoever uh was the perpetrator of their death and that's a real deal you know investigator and that is a heavy you know that's that's the ultimate price to you know frankly carry if you ask me because you know working homicides mm-hmm. i mean boy if you're not solving them then nobody is generally mm-hmm. speaking you know reporting on something is great and it can raise awareness and frankly it can change things but when it comes down to you know you know look i i i dealt with a lot of victims and victims families and when somebody's you know, yeah when they're when they're killed or they're dead it's obviously the most it's the realest crime you know in the worst oh sure and i but i wasn't trying to lighten uh what you're doing for other oh, no, victims no, well. no 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 i didn't take that i mean yeah. i mean look i mean i think of in the seriousness of what you said i think of stories i did in, in countless things not even necessarily you know like in the homicide um you know i've done so many stories on elder abuse and you know you're talking about people and negligence and you know frankly criminal negligence where you know old people dying you know being eaten out by maggots mm. you know what i mean so um okay were they shot and killed in the street no but did they die in a horrific way from neglect and abuse you know um and i have covered stories where you know look when somebody's life is lost it, 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 it you know if you've if you've never been around that most people experience death, you know, um, into, into a small percentage, right? I mean, their family sure. dies and their friends, and that's 
very, very sad. No. But when you're around it and you see, um, you know, one time I saw a building, a building, uh, I was on a, I was working in Chicago and, um, we were on a story and it was a dead of summer, hot out. You know, you had no, I was wearing khaki shorts. You had no choice. A hundred degrees in Chicago, humidity, you're out in the field. And, um, we were working on a story and we get a call. They had heard a police scanner or a fire scanner that there was a horrible accident a block from where we were. So we, we hightailed it over there, myself and my videographer. And it was, um, you know, it was like out of a movie. You know, some building had partially collapsed, a new construction business building and, um, fell on some guy, a huge chunk of concrete. Um, you know, it was a horrific accident and, um, you know, and it was a horrific thing. And then, you know, you come to find out that it was because the guy who was putting up these buildings was doing shoddy construction. And, you know, um, you know, then, you know, you need to somebody needs to help victims um, sure. either, you know, when they're, you know, deceased or otherwise. No, I understand. And to your point, uh, exposing the shoddy construction techniques of this guy uh, was not necessarily the purview of the police investigating the death of that individual, but it gave, but gave you in the uh, investigation reporting field the opportunity to see whether or not this was a pattern and practice with his other buildings and if other people might be at risk. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so. And, and to that end, you also mentioned that you made it out to the West Coast. You made it out to La La Land. So tell me a little sure. bit about L.A. Yeah, Los Angeles is a, it's, you know, it's an amazing, vibrant city, um, uh, you know, diverse population, um, and, you know, and, you know, an amazing culture and a lot of, a lot of crime and, you know, as you'd expect in, in a major city, a lot of gangs, um, a lot of corruption. Um, and a great place to be an investigative reporter, frankly, because it's one of those cities where the stories, you know, you have to look for them, you have to find them, but there's so many. Mm. So I know we're going to save a couple stories for the end, but if you could just kind of run me through um, the arc of your time there, that would be wonderful. Sure. Um, when I was living in Los Angeles, I worked for um, NBC News in Los Angeles um, for years, probably 12 years, and, you know, worked um, investigative stories. And I had a wide range of stories and topics that I covered and, you know, beats. We call them beats. You know, reporters have beats, which would be an issue or industry that they, you know, they cover and they know kind of an expert level. Um, so I did a lot of stuff with organized crime, um, a lot of stuff on the border, which is interesting because today it's um, it's such a hot you know issue. But I spent you know months and years, frankly, doing border stories and up in the border and organized crime stories and human trafficking and smuggling stories and a lot of political, frankly, stories, um, investigative political stories, um, fr helped, um, you know, expose some corruption and fraud in a, in a, um, mayor Hans, um, at the time was a mayor valet in his administration, um, stories that we worked on, you know, a couple of his deputy mayors were indicted down the road. So it kind of really ran the gambit. Plus, um, a lot of stories on a lot of consumer investigative stories, things that you know people are ripped off every day and they don't have much recourse for i love those stories because you know it really a lot of people are victimized um, on consumer things so really the reporting i did ran ran the gambit which was really great uh, it gave me so many different options for stories 
So I'm going to ask a lead-in question, and then I'm going to ask you about your teaching days. So my lead-in question is, uh, obviously, you know, police officers carry a badge, a gun, handcuffs. They carry all the weight and authority of, a, of the organization, the police law enforcement organization behind them. But you're working as an investigative reporter. How did you gather facts? How were you able to get people to talk to you? How were you able to you know, unravel the, the mysteries? Yeah, you know what? It is obviously a really different animal. Um, you know, there is a certain weight that's carried as a journalist. Um, and, you know, in particular, if you're with a news organization like NBC, people know about. And so, you know, you do have that going in, um, a set of, a set of trust. There's usually a little bit of public trust for journalists. And, but it is, it is difficult. You don't have the investigative tools that cops have. You don't, can't issue subpoenas. You can't carry guns. I remember one time on a story, an investigation I was working on. It was an interesting story. It was about a group of a group of guys that were a loosely knit, you know, um, crime syndicate um, stealing a lot of money, perhaps millions of dollars. Um, you know, certainly, certainly in that range um, of federal mail. They were um, these guys were had infiltrated um, LAX airport as baggage handlers, and they they were stealing a lot of money, a lot of federal mail which people may or may not realize, but, you know, from my understanding, a decent amount of it is, um, you know, jewelers who are sending diamonds and such back and forth. I mean, there's a lot of expensive things that, you know, people certify and send um, in the mail. And these guys were ripping ripping a ton of that stuff off. Long story short, when we went to do confrontation, you know, to go interview these guys and catch up with them, some of them were pretty hard in criminals. And uh, one of the guys ended up punching me in the face. Um, hmm. we, we ended up catching up with him yeah in, in compton and he he uh he had you know he attacked me and I, they had weapons and you know and the cops came and uh and they, it all got sorted out but one of the cops was like man you you know you're up in these neighborhoods knocking on doors and you don't carry a gun he's like that's crazy to me <laughs> and uh and that kind of caught like that you know probably because i just got my face pounded in but that registered when he said that you know because frankly you're not carrying guns and you know you're not you know you, you're not confrontational either not that the cops are but you know what i mean sure I so understand. It's, it's challenging you rely you end up relying on um public records you know you know things are there's so many things that are public records that people don't know or frankly care about for the most part but you those would be great um ways to to find stories and to prove things going on you would rely on sources which is really um you know at the center probably every investigators but certainly investigative reporters biggest resource are human sources people that will tell you stories um when we started doing these stories on um, Mayor Han, Jim Han's administration. Um, we were looking into allegations of um, of a pay-to-play sort of um, scheme with a, a high-level um, public relations company that was doing a lot of pro bono work um, on behalf of the mayor and his administration, but they were also getting paid a lot of money in city funds. Um, and I can't remember, we did these stories years and years ago, but, you know, those stories come through sources, people that are able to tell you things um, that trust you with information. Oh, sure. And when you talk about sources and investigative reporting, I can't help but think of Redford and Dustin Hoffman back in All the President's Men 30, 40 years ago. And then more recently in the reprised uh, movie involving Meryl Streep and I guess Tom Hanks uh, about uh, about the Washington Post in that same era. 
right? Yeah, you know, I haven't seen that one yet, but but certainly there is, um, I mean, especially now with all the reporting going on in the current administration and, you know, you know um, in, you know, in, in what's going on, sorry, right now, um, there's so much, there's so much great reporting going on. And, and a lot of that is through confidential informants. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is the, that, you know, the best way to get a story is human sources. And then, and try to cooperate it with other methods, people, places, or things. Yeah. No, I mean, you know what? Like, look, usually when, you know, when somebody tells you something, it could be, they might tell you the whole story. They might lay out everything for you. Um, but oftentimes people just have an inkling that something's not going on right. Or, you know, and so what they tell you is, you know, it could be really raw. Like, you know, um, you know, you know, uh, anytime I move to a different city, I'll look at, you know, that things that the other thing is you have to be, you know, I'll always look at things that I really think are important to the city. And one thing in Los Angeles is, is it's a driving city. It's a car culture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you start listening to people and um, people talking about, you know, all the problems with, you know, getting ripped off by valets in LA or having, you know, you know, getting their cars smashed and you know, you start hearing things and I'm like, that's interesting. And, you know, and why is it, you know, why is it? Well, there's, everybody's driving to LA, you know, so you get that tip that, look, I got my car, I, I got a ticket, a parking ticket when I had, you know, given it to a valet or I got the car back and it was damaged and they wouldn't take responsibility, you know, story after story. And, you know, you start looking into it and you start, you know, hearing about the bad places and you start to go check them out you know do some undercover work you see what's going on that there actually is something happening out there shoot some undercover video and then you start looking into it more and you're like okay why is this and then you come to find out that there is like little to no regulation on you know on uh, ballet companies in the city of los angeles at the time i hear you know and, and you're you're doing a service for a uh, uh a clientele or a consumer base that lives in their car so for them, sure. that's a very important uh, story, and it would it would play well. I'm, I'm sure that with the undercover video and telling uh, the story. Well, see, it plays well, and that's why it's a great story um, to start because people can relate to it. But then once you start digging into it, and you're like, "Look, there hasn't been any regulation on the books to address valet companies." We found out were literally unregulated. Um, you know, they. I mean, or there might have been some extremely minor, um, extremely minor, you know, um, regulation. I can't remember specifically but but you know the drivers um didn't have to prove it even driver's licenses mm. and there were frankly people yeah so you start looking into it and you kind of expose what's going on and you know next thing you know people start getting interested and they started regulating it but i will say um you know, it's it's interesting as you build through, you start with what could be a tip, then you start having to build the evidence, uh, which is obviously very important in any investigation. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, just another uh, good movie uh, that we probably both know about, uh, Spotlight, about the uh, Boston Archdiocese and uh, how the uh, paper there uh, had to work through uh, a myriad of uh, tips and uh, stonewalling to get to the truth. Well, you know, that is really, you know, I, I know um, some of those folks and they did an amazing job, you know, with, obviously with that investigation. Sure. But that is that's kind of an example of something that, you know, everybody knew about for years. And it was, it was, I mean, everybody knew about it for years and, you know, and there had been reporting on it, but, you know, going up against, you know, that, um, establishment is, is a huge thing. And, and, and it was for them. And, 
and through the years, you know, reporting, you, you know, you always had to, you know, you always have to get everything right when you do any investigative reporting, but on something as um, sensitive as religion and, you know, sexual assault of children, ugh, yes. I mean, that's as serious as it gets. And they stuck with it mm-hmm. and they, you know, and they really showed um, what was, go- what was going on. And, you know, and we all know what was going on now, you know, um, priests doing the, some priests doing this stuff for years and getting shuffled around and hidden, right. you know, a- across the country. I mean, I did a lot of report. I did, I did some reporting. I mean, enough, a lot for me. I didn't want to do any more um, on that, that whole um, thing. And, Again, that's as bad as it gets. And, you but, know, but an abuse point, of power, an abuse of trust, and the damage that was done to the victims, the people that that went through that, and then and then the um, years of extra abuse as they were denied, um, you know, the fact that they were even victims. Yeah, absolutely. And and now finally, after years, um, it's not only reported in Boston, but they found other archdioceses, uh, same uh, formula. Uh, happening there, and now it's no, uh, it's out there. No, we did we America. did those stories. No, yeah, we did those stories. I was doing those stories in California um, around you know around the same time the Boston Globe. I mean, that was a story, and I'm not taking any credit away from what they did at no. all. No. But again, there ha- you know there were other people reporting on that. Just nobody took it to the level that they did, and I mean, you know, obviously they that was what they did was amazing. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. But, you know, to the point that you're making, it's almost if, and this is what I wanted to tease out of you a little bit, it's that there's private investigative work, which, you know, works mostly in the civil arena, some criminal work, some criminal defense work. Uh, And then there's law enforcement work, you know, that that goes to probable cause and uncovering uh, or having enough uh, to convict beyond a reasonable doubt. But to me, I've always looked at um, stellar investigative reporting as being the Cadillac of investigation, that it it required even a greater amount of care in, uh, in, in presenting the facts because of the the tremendous scrutiny that uh, the different stories would be put under. Is that a fair assessment, or do you do you share that with me, or you know how do you, I mean, how do you deal I, with that? I, I, look, I I can't um, attest. I I. I can't attest to, you know, I think they all are incredibly difficult and challenging and have their own sets of, you know, challenges, um, you know, but, but, you know, speaking, I can speak that, you know, what you said is true of investigative TV or investigative reporting. Um, yeah, it's such high level stakes because, you know, when we, you know, publish, it's going to be in front of millions of people or, you know, once it's out there, then it's, it's too late. I mean, um, you have to have it right. And the level of scrutiny, I mean, I'm thinking back on what you know a story i never did um um ended up putting on air so i have to be careful what i say here let me mm-hmm. think about it so i did a story and it's fine i did a series of investigations looking into um how organic organic food is that's a fair and story yeah yeah and um you know and the thing is so much of this stuff comes from out of the country it's imported right and again if i'm hazy on the details um it's from it's from you know this is this i this story years and years ago, but I um, know the you know U.S. Organics, um, the federal agency. I'm pretty sure it's U.S. 
USDA, maybe that regulates organics. I can't remember. It's either way. Um, they, they, you know, they inspect. Um, and again, this is where my memory gets a little bit hazy. They inspect a very minimal percentage of organic food that comes into the country. They just, they don't have the means to inspect at all. So instead, they rely on third-party um, organic certifiers. Sure. Um, to to certify a lot of organics coming in, uh, and it might be the um, I can't. Yeah. So regardless, you know, um, there's room for air in there. And furthermore, you know, the um, the the food is being grown in countries where it's practically impossible to be 100 percent organic. You know, um, if you're growing stuff um, in um, soil that has chemicals that have a 50 year, 80 year, 100 year shelf life. Um, it's not going to be organic. So long story short, we end up looking into this and, you know, very diligently we had um, a bunch of different things, big, big, big name um, organics tested. And, um, and you know, to even do that, there is a, um, you know, when you work for a news organization, um, they have, you know, extremely uh, explicit, specific, um, you know, rules that apply to any kind of stories or investigations that do scientific scientific testing. And, um, you know, and as part of that, you need to find laboratories that are totally independent um, of your story, um, of whatever, you know, the players are in your story. But they are, you know, obviously expert um, in, in the field of laboratory testing um, in that particular field. So it's it's quite challenging, you know, when you do these kinds of stories. But So we started looking into this. We found um, some real issues and discrepancies. And we had a story that was about to air and um you know in fact commercials were about to start airing and we got a 10 p.m phone call an email from you know attorneys from one of the biggest food companies maybe in the world um you know calling into question our um our laboratory's testing um uh, and, and our results now i'm being a little bit ambiguous in this because mm-hmm. i don't want to you know the story never aired um and and you know and literally you know 10 minutes before our commercial started airing i had to decide if if what they're saying had enough merit to to pull the story or to hold the story. Um, you know, and of course, I have a whole chain of command above me that makes that decision, too, including our legal. But it kind of starts and stops with the person who does the story. Long story short, we held the story um, because, you know, they had valid questions and I would never, it's just not worth it. You know what I mean? Getting right. it wrong. Um, and we never ended up airing the story. It, it kind of got shut down. Um, just naturally, I ended up in NBC and and moving on at some point, you know, some of these investigations take years, but, um, you know, it was, it gets really technical and it's under, you know, when you have a major food company saying, um, with their, their attorney sending you, um, what they say are the newest industry considered, um, standardized testing on this stuff for organics. And you're relying on a couple labs that you, you vetted and you, you checked, but you're not doing the work. I mean, it's very intense. Right. Um, and you know, anytime something is going to air and it should be, it should be, you're no. Blowing people up, you're blowing up companies. You know, if sure. you, if you, when you're doing a story on somebody, there should be that level of scrutiny because you you permanently damage their reputation and worse. No, I understand, and and I think to your point and to the point I was making is that uh, the news organizations, whether they be uh, TV uh, or print, 
uh, are held to a higher standard for a couple reasons. One, because of the tremendous consequence of their reporting, but also because of the competitive nature of their business. If, uh, for, if, uh, say the Boston Globe got it completely wrong on the archdiocese in Boston, well, that could have affected readership. That could affect, uh, subscriptions. That could possibly put them out of business, you know? Certainly, certainly. It, 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 it damages the reputation of, you know, a, a, a sound news organization. I mean, even, you know, recently ABC News had some issues and everybody has issues and sure. people and you know and it's and it's you know I, I haven't been following a lot of that stuff so closely but when when a news organization's reputation is in question you know understandably they can't have it um, be damaged over a story I mean if it's wrong if it's wrong you right. know if it's right um, you know it's interesting you know that they do it's they do stand up the news organizations will stand up with you under incredible scrutiny if, if you got it right right you know I mean, so that's the thing. You can't look. And at the end of the day, you always have to remember that it is a heavy weight you're dropping on somebody. And it's somebody's sister, somebody's brother, somebody's business. You know, you can't be um, you got to be very careful and balanced that you're not getting it wrong. Oh, but to the flip side, and I'll, I'll just say this after, you know, talking with you on this subject. Uh, and going back to what I had said earlier, uh, whereas the care and responsibility has to be there, obviously, for the news organizations, well, I would hope that the same would be there for, say, uh, the FBI, uh, local law enforcement, or any of the administrative organizations that do investigations. But at the end of the day, whether they get it right or they get it wrong, they're still going to be there. In other words, uh, you pick up the phone and dial 911, your local police department is going to still be there. Uh, right. You uh, make a, you want to make a federal case out of it, well, the FBI will still be there. Anything to do with uh, any uh, regulatory or administrative agency, they might get it wrong. Well, they're still going to be there. So I just think that the sense of uh, the competitiveness of the news organizations to get it right and that sort of professionalism driving that tends to uh, give you that one extra minute of pause. And, and then, oh, it, it does. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it. I mean, again, um, you know, yeah, it does. It, it better, or else you won't be around long. No, if it and, doesn't, you know. And sometimes in local law enforcement, and I'm making this as an assumption, you don't have to agree with me. It's a little bit of an editorial on my part. But if in local law enforcement situation, if no one's ever checking the product, right, no one's ever checking it, suddenly uh, beyond a reasonable doubt then becomes uh, probable cause. Well, maybe it's then uh, a reasonable suspicion. And suddenly you're down to the lowest level of uh, proof by which uh, people are being charged with crimes. And it doesn't, and it doesn't have the same, uh, sort of, uh, review that if they were really being held over the fire, you know what I'm saying? Well, I've seen, I mean, yeah, I, I've certainly seen that. I've certainly seen that. Um, and, you know, look, and I think a lot of that could be changing too with technology and the times, you know, um, but yeah, you get, I mean, I've done stories and I'll, you know, again, I'll kind of be careful, but, you know, when I was out in California, did some stories looking into a range of things, but one, you know, come some kind of, um, well, I'll always remember one was on this this kid that was uh, killed by um, some county sheriffs, 
And, you know, it was certainly a questionable shooting. Um, you know, um, mm-hmm. it was certainly a questionable shooting, in my opinion. And after doing a lot of research on it, I wasn't there. So obviously, I, you know, you know, you can't say unless you're there. But um, from the way it looked and what we found in our investigation, you know, it was a questionable shooting anyways. Um, you know, and look, in the, um, you know, it was a small town up in the mountains um, in California. And, um, and I'm not saying, I don't know. I don't know what the motive. Are, I don't know what happened. All I know is, you know, look, when, when the local, uh, if you, you live in a, especially a small area, a small municipality, um, investigations, if it's a local investigation, it's, it normally starts and stops with your local investigators or your county investigators or your state investigators. And, um, you know, if there isn't that, you know, I've certainly seen situations that are questionable with law enforcement, but that's like any other industry, you know, it's, we're just all people, right? Right. So you got good people, you got bad people you got people that are lazy a lot of times you know um i i tend to think that a lot of these what appear to be grand conspiracies um you know maybe some are and certainly some are but a lot of times it's people that are just you know lazy right. or slacking on their job and to that point you know uh, i think that i would like to say that i look at investigative reporting i look at high-end high-level investigative reporting and i see the checks and balances in place there and for my listeners for the people that i'm trying to talk to and inspire to be the best investigators they can be. There's a lot to be learned from um, techniques and from the uh, craft, the, the, the field craft of investigative reporting that can be applicable in other investigative endeavors as well. So to that end, I learned that from you that you were out in L.A. and that uh, you were able to teach at UCLA and you were able to teach young aspiring students. So you can tell me about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, no, I did that for about, you know, four or five years, um, just a semester of class. And um, most of the classes were, you know, on investigative reporting. Um, so, sure, I taught in that sense. And also, you know, as a journalist, you really learn on the job. So um, I, I, you know, more I'm probably even more proud of the young journalists who I maybe helped train a little bit early on or throughout their careers and have gone on to do great things too. But, but, you know, the teaching of investigative journalism, um, you know, and this isn't from me, I, 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 I'm part of a, an association of investigative journalists and a very collaborative group where people share theories and other things. So, um, you know, you know, investigative journalism, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning, um, you know, a very simple thing that, you know, we do, um, is, you know, you, when you're when you're touched off on an investigation or you get an, an idea for an investigation um, it's this is basic stuff again this isn't um, you know it's just a system all investigative reporters have their own system and they do things differently but we all follow the same sort of probably way of doing it um, you know you hear a tip you 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 start getting interested in the story and the first thing you do is um, you look for anything you can written about it um, any and we call that kind of secondary source material so let's say you're um, you're interested in um, in these immigration holding centers that are who's making the money, right? So that's the first thing you want to know. You have first thing you do is come up with a focus for your investigation, um, and that's you know the most important. And that and the focus could change, mm-hmm. but the first thing you do is you have a focus of your investigation, and then the then the second thing you do is you scour and you get as much obtain as much secondary source material, meaning any. Anything you can find that's written about it, any story, um, and any you know if there's any government uh, materials available, if it's something that's government related, there's usually some sort.
sort of documentation. If, if something is, um, you know, a criminal case, there's documentation in the criminal court system. But, but first you do a cursory kind of, you know, what's out there? What's the scope? What's been reported on this issue? And at that point, you determine if, you know, if enough's been reported on it or if there's anything that you could report that hasn't been or maybe nothing's been reported at all. There's just some anecdotal stuff out there. So once you get all your secondary source material, you know, you um, you start building the investigation and you start looking into the organization. Either usually you're investigating a person, um, an organization, or an issue. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what it boils down to, right? A bad right. player, uh, maybe a corrupt organization, or, you know, some sort of issue. You know, um, immigration on the border, right? Our, our border patrol agents being, you know, abusive, right? That's, you know, an issue, sort of, right? Because right. right. there's, you know, right? So once you establish that and you have the focus of your investigation, you start kind of drilling in into who the key players are. And at that point, you know, once you have a real understanding of as much as you can, the issue, everything that's been reported, everything that's public knowledge on it, then you try to figure out who the most important people that that you could connect with, either to do interviews on the record, either to give you, you know, um, evidence to collaborate, to to, um, you know, to independently. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> to, and to independently verify, um, you know, you name it. And we call that. That, you know, human source, right? Right, human. So that, so that's the second level, um, um, digging down um, into the investigation. And once you get to the human sources, and those could be anybody from, you know, a um, um, a civil attorney who has um, uncovered some interesting allegations about, um, you know, the way a company handles its, um, you know, environmental um, pollution, um, or it could be a cop who could tell you something about an investigation that hasn't been publicly released or it could be a valet guy telling you about drug deals that are happening at a you know at a local nightclub Mm -hmm. Um, those are the human sources you know once you get to that level of the investigation you know that's when you really start uncovering things and and you get people on the record to you know to to verify what's going on and then the golden level is kind of the smoking gun evidence. Um, and that's the thing that all investigators, you know, really seek on these stories. And, you know, smoking gun evidence would be anything, any real documentation that can substantiate the allegations that you're, you know, you or people in your story are making. And, you know, to your point, it sounds like that's the bullseye, but in, in a real sense, you can't get to the bullseye without going through the outer layers first. I mean, sometimes. That's exactly it. Yeah. That's exactly it. So you start, you can't, you, first thing you have to know is everything that's been written about it, everything that's out there. And then, yeah, you know, and if you don't have enough of that information, then people don't take you seriously, mm-hmm. especially when you're doing investigative work. You know what I mean? You're not, hi, this is Fred from Fox calling. And, you know, if you don't know what the hell you're talking about, and if you don't approach them strategically, in the right way, you're not going to ever get them to play ball. Right. So, um, and if you're not damn sure, you know, if they're not damn sure you know what you're talking about enough that you're, you know, you're risking their livelihoods, their lives, and perhaps their freedom if they get caught, you know, giving um, federal secrets or what have you. I mean, it's it's hefty, it's hefty. It's a real burden when you get to the level of human sources because these are people that are entrusting you, you know, frankly, with their lives in some cases. 
things. And if you don't, if you don't, if you're not walking the walk while you're talking the talk, people pick up on that very quickly, and they're going to say, "Why do I? Why should I take a risk with this guy when he doesn't even know his own game?" Right? You know that, and yeah, and frankly, and if you start doing things, um, not I'm not going to use the word shady, but if you start cutting corners right. or you're, right. you know, you're not doing the diligence and really flushing all these things out and being fair and being analytical and, and not just relying on your supposed expertise, but you know, uh, doing the diligence and there in 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 in, in double checking that you, what you think is going on might be going. It's 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 really complex and nuanced. Every one of these stories, you know, and then you, like you said. There's such high levels of scrutiny. I was working on a story looking into um, some NASA stuff, and um, I had just started making some calls on it for nightly news, and I was extremely careful. Um, it was about what I thought was a real misuse of millions, tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. Um, and, um, and I started making some very preliminary phone calls on it to a few people that I found. It took me forever to find these two people because they were high level enough at NASA. They had been high level enough at NASA that they knew the ins and outs of the program and what I was talking about. But neither one of them appeared to be particularly um, partisan. I mean, you know, when you're at a, from my understanding, when you're, you know, at a high level of NASA, a lot of these federal agencies you're appointed by somebody, right? Either a Republican or a Democrat, and and they tend to align, um, you find. So I was trying to find somebody I could talk to about a rocker program um, that wouldn't have too much skin in the game. Mm -hmm. Because, um, and I reached out and I explained who I was, and I said, look, I'm hoping I could talk to you in confidence. I'm just at the very beginning of this. I'm not even sure I'm doing a story on it. You know, both these people swore my confidence that they weren't going to say anything to anybody. And, um, <laughs> I can see and, where this is going. And, oh, and within a half an hour, I was back in my office from lunch, and I had a urgent, but not like, you know, worried, but an urgent email from my boss saying, hey, you know, like the head of NASA is calling up um, our, our, our main transportation reporter in D.C. and, you know, and ask what you're um, asking about. So, there <laughs> so, you know, within two, within half an hour, the one of these two nonpartisan people had you know, jumped on their phone to the point where, you know, the highest levels of NASA were already calling, um, mm. you know, so that's the kind of level of scrutiny when you're doing some of these reports. And even if it's not, even if you're doing a story on, you know, frankly, you know, um, Joe Schmo down the block ripping people off at his local, um, you know, um, you know, lube shop. Um, you know, it's still somebody's business. It's right. somebody's life. It's somebody's life. You no, know, I you, have to be you just can't as take careful. it lightly. Yeah, right. and plus, people get mad. You don't want somebody coming after you or ruining somebody's life or anything. Well, Fred, you've been really gracious with me so far, and uh, you've been touching on a few stories to exemplify you know, the issues that you you're know, raising. But this is the time in the podcast when I just ask flat out: Do you have a favorite story to tell me? Sure. Sure, I do. Um, um, one thing um, that um, was, you know, I did a lot of reporting and investigations into organized crime, if you and um, you know that term. I think everybody obviously associates traditionally with like the Italian mafia, um, and certainly it's it is that. But you know, I think everybody nowadays is um, you know familiar with some of the El Salvadorian gangs, you know, that are that are here in America now. But you know, the, these organized crime syndicates, you know, really 
run every ethnic group. Um, and that's how they kind of thrive in ethnic communities, um, tight knit, you know, in- inclusionary sort of communities. Um, so I did a lot of reporting on, you know, the Russian mafia and the Euro Asian mafia, um, some in New York, but a lot in Los Angeles too. And, um, and that was pretty interesting stuff. Um, you know, looking into how some of these organized crime syndicates make their money, um, you know, and that really runs the gambit from anything from, you know, racketeering to drugs to human trafficking, murder for hire, um, you know, all that kind of high profile stuff you hear about on TV. But they also do a lot of, you know, what would be deemed low level crimes that they make a ton of money off. Of. Um, you know, um, welfare fraud, Medicare fraud, any way they can siphon money, um, you know, they frankly, they will. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and I and I end up looking into a ring in Southern California, um, you know, kind of in the, you know, operating in the Glendale, Pasadena area. Um, and, um, and these folks were, they were involved in all that stuff. It was pretty heavy duty, pretty intense. Um, but I was, you know, I was chasing them down on some of this kind of low level um, welfare fraud. I mean, if you call to the tune of millions of dollars, low level mm-hmm. um you know but but they like these kinds of crimes because even if you get busted for a lot of welfare fraud you know you're going to do some time in prison but you're not doing you know extortion or racketeering time right you know once you get start you know those charges those you're talking decades of your life so uh you know so anyways but regardless these folks didn't want any of this being highlighted and um and i started um highlighting what was going on with this particular group of people and you know and they knew who i was and it was it was a kind of a scary time frankly because they were you know as a journalist in america you're really relatively safe but that doesn't mean things can't happen and you know you don't get scared sometimes mm-hmm. so um you know as i was reporting on this you know organized crime family i was really careful um because it wasn't me and 25 other reporters you know um doing a big story um it was just me and right. um and you know, and I, you know, so I remember one day I was chasing these guys down toward house. Um, I was going to try to ask them some questions. So I got there really early. I parked in a lot way, way far from the courthouse. And after the court case, I, you know, I tried talking to these guys before the court case, you know, very politely. And, uh, and they didn't refuse to talk to me very politely. And, um, and then I kind of, okay, I did my diligence. I asked them in person. I, and I've been trying to contact them through their lawyers, but I really, frankly, wanted to try to get them to talk to me. Um, I actually was, I've been pretty lucky in my career getting people to talk in the most unlikely scenarios but these guys were professionals and they didn't want to talk so that was that and um and i ended up hanging around the courthouse kind of hiding out in a lounge area just because i didn't want to leave there you know these guys you know they had 25 people with them and they were they were all staring at me pretty hard Uh um so so long story short i ended up leaving later that afternoon and i was very careful and i thought i was at least i mean i was halfway careful i left later in the afternoon and i parked far away so so as I was pulling out of the parking lot, I noticed these two guys that are standing there and boy, don't they look like just like, I mean, again, they look like two of the guys that were hanging out. And I'm like, this, maybe it's, you know, it could be, it could be that or, you know, but they were writing down my 
license plate and and you know in in and doing it out in the open very flagrantly yeah um and i'm like okay well that's that's you know disconcerting and <laughs> you know and bit. that kind of, and that kind of stuff continued i mean you know one night i was um i was um about a week later before we were getting ready to publish i was in hollywood or something and it was extreme it was like one midnight one in the morning and i pulled into the in and out drive through um and um i was sitting i don't know if you've ever been to an in and out but it doesn't matter what time of day it is there's a line to drive right so there was a line and i was stuck between cars a bunch of cars and out of nowhere like four or five guys came up to my car and surrounded my car and um and it was a very strange conversation it was it was a really first of all when they rolled up around me yeah it's like one in the morning in hollywood you know okay. what i mean this isn't good you know no. um and they surrounded my car and even people everybody else in the drive-through was you know you could just people were looking you know it was weird it was weird and um you know i rolled down the window a little bit what am i gonna do i rolled down like an engine like hey what's up man and um oh you know i need your help you know it was you know it's clearly you know well i i can't i'm not an, a complete expert on the russian dialect but it sounded like a russian kind of guy and you know and hey you seem like a smart guy um we just got here we just got to america we don't want you look you, you seem like a guy that knows how to live in la and you know, and not how to stay alive in L.A. And, and it was really weird, man. It was a real shakedown. You know, it was a real form of intimidation, frankly. Um, and all you wanted was an In-N-Out burger and some fries, right? That's it. That's yeah. it. But it, it, instead, you know, so, you know, that kind of stuff is always scary. Um, right. But, you know, we were able to do some good reporting on it. And, and at that point, frankly, I turned it over to other people when that started happening. We have, That's why you have a team to work with, you right. know. It wasn't Fred that, anymore. It was. And then, it became, then it became just NBC News. Yes, and and within, know, the, within the cover of a umbrella organization, the story got broke, and it wasn't uh, they weren't coming after you anymore. No, no, uh, but you know, it's you know sometimes you're on edge when something like that happens. I understand. So, uh, Fred, you mentioned an organization from which uh, the uh, an association that you belong to, and would this be a, a an organization or somewhat uh, association that? Uh, people that are interested in investigative reporting would like to get in touch with for more resources. Yeah, material. it's it's called IRE IRE dot org, um, and it's investigative reporting editing editor association, and um, it's actually an amazing. Um, it's an amazing association of investigative journalists from every media and TV broadcast, you know, radio, print, digital, you name it. Um, Did you say podcast? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, of course. There, no, you know what? I, mean, I, I think there are, but I would assume so. I mean, I thought it ran the gambit of journalists, but the, the center of it is either you're an investigative journalist or you're a student. Um is I think how they want the the people you know they're I think they're pretty serious about that part about the membership. You either have to be an investigative reporter or journalist or a journalism student. Um, but if you're able to join the organization, it frankly is um, amazing the amount of um, a craft from that you know techniques that people share with each other. Um, you know, it's it's literally three days of seminars, and they are you know how to investigate agriculture, how to investigate um, you know fatalities, you know motor vehicle fatalities, how to investigate you know using data, how to you know how to build a paper trail. 
how to, I mean, it's, it really is the most incredible. I've been to a lot of conferences, but the way the conferences they hold, the training that they provide, um, you know, we touched on a little bit, but nowadays, you know, computer assisted reporting, you know, car reporting, they call it computer assisted reporting is so important, you know, to be able to use databases and to really, you know, if you want to crunch data, you know, um, some of the stuff that you learn is really, really amazing. Well, and with that, I'd just like to say thank you. I appreciate the time you spent with me. I really do. Uh, I know that you're busy, and uh, when we get a chance to chat, it's always wonderful. I love hearing your stories. And, thanks, John. Uh, I appreciate it. So thanks so thanks much, Thanks for having me on the show. You're thank welcome. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Please leave any comments on the website, www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. Our guest next week is the chief investigator of the Contra Costa County Public Defender's Office in Martinez, California. Is Linda Sanderson. Since 1986, she has provided dedicated and effective defense investigation for indigent persons accused of crimes in one of California's most litigious public defender offices. She provided defense investigation coverage on nearly all the Richmond gang cases since 1990. As chief investigator since 2012, where she supervises 11 defense investigators, she overhauled the department's investigation division into a highly dedicated, efficient, and accomplished unit working alongside the attorney staff in a holistic and team format. Prior to that, she was a reporter for 10 years with the Contra Costa Times and the Rockland County Journal News. I welcome Linda Sanderson to the podcast. Our circle around the campfire continues to grow by leaps and bounds. I thank you for telling your friends and leaving reviews on your favorite podcast app. FYI, each episode takes around five hours to research, interview, edit, format, and produce, as well as share. Then there are the expenses to air the shows. I love these podcasts, and your ongoing support is appreciated. You can support the show for less than a couple coffees a month at patreon.com forward slash my favorite detective stories. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash my favorite detective stories, all one word. And you will receive all the stories and just the stories from my guests. But wait, there is more. Each guest has given me a second story exclusively for Patreon subscribers. Help me bring to you my favorite detective stories.